Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's the fourth day of 2022, and Omicron is crashing the new year. Today, we get the latest on the COVID surge, this variant, and how it's impacting school, work, and life in general. Coming up, we hear from school officials, an epidemiologist, and a Connecticut doctor treating hospital patients. And we want to hear from you. Have you sent your kids back to school? Or how's the hunt for a COVID test going for you or your family members? You can join us 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or share a comment on Facebook or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Later, I'll be joined by Dr. Saad Omer, director of the Yale Institute for Global Health, and he's also professor of medicine and infectious disease diseases, to answer your questions about the Omicron variant and the latest guidance from the CDC. First this week marks the return to school after a holiday break, and that saw thousands of new COVID infections in Connecticut. Many local school districts have reopened, but we've heard from parents and some school staff still on edge. And this morning, Hamden superintendent tweeted that due to staffing shortages, Hamden High School will be closed today. Joining us first on Zoom is Fran Rabinowitz, Executive Director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. Fran, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lucy. I'm um, very pleased to be here. Now, this note, we also invited Connecticut's Public Health Commissioner, Dr. Manisha Jutani, to join us today, but neither she nor a representative from the State Department of Public Health were able to join this hour. And so, Fran, uh, tell us what uh, your members have been dealing with, especially in the lead up to the return to school. A lot of planning uh, post uh, CDC, oh. this updated guidance. What, what, if, what do you know? Um, so much planning, Lucy. I mean, um, we were very much looking forward to the week between Christmas and New Year's as being a, a bit of a respite, um, but uh, that didn't quite happen. There was new guidance that came out, and certainly the surge in COVID um, had us uh, had superintendents across the state um, planning how they would reopen, um, trying to get numbers to determine um, what type of staffing shortage they would have. They were redeploying staff and um, um, really up until the last minute for some of them, they didn't even know um, if they could open on Monday. Um, I personally think they did an incredible job of um, being able to open. The far majority of schools um, did open. I spoke to many who were um, uh, superintendents, assistant superintendents were out in the buildings, just you know, manning classrooms. And, and 
in some places. That's unusual to have central staff uh, in the classroom yes. uh, as stand-ins uh, for teachers and others uh, who may not be able to come uh, because of a COVID uh, positive test or someone in their household. And so talk more about that patchwork because we're hearing about staffing shortages, but also on the idea of, of not even having enough bus drivers to get students to school, Fran. I think that if I could start with the bus drivers, that was a determining factor in, um, you know, a couple of districts that I spoke to. I spoke to one superintendent yesterday who was just um, pretty despondent about having to close at the last minute. And he said up until 11 o'clock on Sunday night, he was in, in okay shape. But on Monday morning, um, he realized he had such a shortage of bus drivers that he was just unable to open because there could have been a uh, long delay and he didn't want an elementary child standing out there for an hour um, in 27 degrees. So he was forced to close. Um, I have a positive story in New Haven. Um, the, you know, they were down 52 bus drivers yesterday, but Fairfield had it in their calendar to have schools closed. They weren't reopening until um, Tuesday, not due to COVID. It was just in the calendar. And um, they shared their bus drivers from Fairfield with New Haven. And so Dr. Tracy was able to open the schools. Um, I think there's a whole lot of redeployment going on. Their teachers are amazing and they're covering for their um, colleagues on their free periods, et cetera. So you mentioned New Haven, also Enfield um, having issues with busing. That's why they were unable uh, to open. Again, uh, relying on you know maybe neighboring districts who have made the decisions to close that then have people to pitch in to drive kids to other uh, schools. Not sustainable, friends. So are you worried about uh, you know this next uh, week when we're hearing uh, you know even more cases are ex are expected? I, I am concerned. By the way, I, I'm sorry if I misled you. New Haven did open. Um, they have not closed at all. Um, but Enfield yes. was closed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, right. They did not close. Um, I, I am worried. And certainly we're going to take it um, day by day. I was heartened this morning that um, there weren't a large number of school districts closed. As a matter, uh, as a matter of fact, some that were closed yesterday were open today. So um, that was um, somewhat heartening to me. But um, do I think we're on edge? Absolutely. You know, there's nothing that we want more than to have our our children in front of us. Um, and I know, I know, I'm on constantly on the phone with um, the teachers unions, and uh, they want that as well. Um, certainly in a safe environment. And, you know, it's just, I think it's going to be day by day, Lucy, right now. And we're just going to have to um, sit with the discomfort because we're planners. We want to know everything's in place for our students for the next months. And it it has been incredibly hard on um, on our school leaders and educators to have to live with uncertainty. 
You're hearing Fran Rabinowitz here on Where We Live. She's executive director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. Uh, Fran, you used the word uncertainty. That's where a lot of this anxiety and stress yes. and frustration uh, that's being felt not only uh, by uh, school officials uh, trying to do their best, but uh, I heard from many parents uh, yesterday who some were too nervous to send their kids in because of this COVID surge. Others, uh, you know, worried about, um, you know, remote learning starting again because they they've seen how their children have struggled. They don't want to see that option. And so when we think about this next few weeks and months, uh, thinking about remote uh, learning having to be a, a possibility if there aren't enough staff uh, to be in a school, uh, you know, talk through uh, what the superintendents are thinking uh, about that alternative. Well, I will tell you that um, superintendents in Connecticut um, not unlike superintendents um, that I'm hearing, you know, I heard today about um, Philadelphia um, wanting to do whatever is possible to keep our schools open and to have students um, physically there. We know from our from our students themselves, um, they have told us how important that is and from our families and you know certainly from our staff as well and so I think we'll do everything possible to um, to not um, implement remote learning at this point. Um, I, I certainly think that if it does become a possibility um, we're able to pivot to that as you know, right now, we don't have that ability that um, would be an executive order from the governor. And we're certainly at this point in time not looking to move to remote learning. Um, we have the majority of our schools open. Um, our schools over the last two and a half years now have proved to be, um, well, two years, have proved to be the safest places ever. I mean, the mitigating strategies that we're using and continue to use um, along with our N95 masks, we're expecting um, a shipment of home tests um, to arrive in our schools today. Uh, certainly not enough for everyone, but um, there will be more shipments coming our way. And we think with those mitigating strategies, um, I can't guarantee a hundred percent safety for students but i do think it's one of the safer places for our um our children to be again you're hearing fram rabinowitz here on where we live for another perspective from a school district in connecticut joining us now is jan peruccio who's superintendent of old saybrook public schools jan welcome to the show thank you for having me good morning so what plans were in place uh, for your schools to open, Jan? How'd you do it? Uh, it took a village, quite honestly. Um, you know, similar to Fran's story about what's happening at a state level, at a local and regional level, um, we spent the week off creating scenarios. Every possible scenario was considered and what actions we would take. Uh, and that meant, um, you know, a lot of regional effort with our, our health district, our medical advisor, um, the district leadership team, all the administrators, emergency management, 
the teachers union. We met with all of these folks either, you know, by phone or uh, Zoom or Google Meet and made sure that we were all saying the same thing on the same page and prepared for multiple outcomes. And then, of course, finally, we communicated with families and staff about what to expect, got masks into teachers' hands right away. Uh, and even got our bus company on board. So lots and lots of work, lots of building of infrastructure and and planning for all possibilities really is what made this happen uh, yesterday. Tell us about uh, any staff shortages that you're facing and how you're filling that gap. Is there a reliance on, on substitutes? We What we did is we called all of our substitutes, our, our regular subs who come in on a, on a very regular basis, and we got them lined up, uh, even when we weren't sure if we had openings. And that turned out to be the best way to go because we ended backfilling using them. Um, we have decided an order how we will pull people um, into from one classroom into another. Um, and how we will use administrators, including central office administrators. I was telling Fran earlier, I'm in my teacher clothes today. And if I end up in a classroom, um, that'll be a great experience for me. Uh, I think it's it's the best way to go uh, to make sure that teachers and, and students and families know that we care so much about being here in school that we'll do whatever it takes. We've spent some time talking about having uh, people in place, but you know, I'd, I'd like to ask you more about with this new guidance from the CDC uh, shortening the isolation period and the guidance that the DPH, Department of Public Health, has given schools. Uh, tell us your response uh, to uh, these changes and you know how you're getting this information uh, to staff and thinking about um, communicating with parents about this as we see this surge continuing. It was a significant change to drop back from 10 days to five days. And so it took some time for me uh, and my uh, nursing director who worked with me all last week uh, and even our regional health authority to absorb the change and to appreciate why that change was being recommended. Uh, and then, you know, once we came to understand the rationale, uh, you know, we shared it with families in bits and pieces so that they could process it in the same way and with staff as well. Really important when a dramatic change like that, you know, is made that we understand what the science was that went into it. Uh, we were just on a call with DPH just before this meeting and um, there were a number of really excellent points made about why that change was made. Um, part of it is logistics, that we don't have testing kits and we don't have PCR testing availability uh, as we would like to. And so keeping students out of school or keeping staff out of work who may test positive for weeks, um, but have no way of, they're not really uh, shedding the virus anymore. Um, that was the rationale behind it as it was explained to us. And when people have questioned it or pushed back on it, I've explained that Old Saber Public Schools has followed Department of Public Health guidance and has vetted it with our regional health authority and our medical advisor every step of the way, because obviously I have to stay in my lane and be an educator. I'm, I'm not a medical person. And, and people have understood that. You mentioned staying in your lane, but you must be hearing uh, concerns from parents uh, thinking about uh, also uh, one of the guidance, one of the um, new changes is that when we think about uh, the, the amount of time that school nurses and other staff have been working on contact tracing, that's not something that's going to continue moving forward. Jan, what can you tell us? Well, the victory, the happy story there is that we have throughout the pandemic had very little uh, transmission of illness inside our schools. 
And that's because this is a place where people have been diligent about keeping masks on uh, and social distancing. Our teachers and administrators have done a great job explaining that to students. Our students had done a great job staying masked. And just before the holidays, uh, students were starting to slip a little. And I can report that they have gone back to being very diligent about their ma mask wearing again. Uh, they want to be in school. They want to play sports. And so they have, they have really done a great job with that. Um, you know, I think for the most part, we've had no transmission in schools. We continue to contact trace here in Old Saybrook, not inside our classrooms where we know everyone's doing a great job, but in those places that are a little bit more high risk, like the cafeteria where students are eating. Um, also, the school buses where a bus driver is the adult on the bus, and that person is responsible for getting kids home safely and watching the roads. And while they are trying to be diligent about watching students and mask wearing, too, um, that's not always possible. So that's another place we intend to continue contact tracing. Uh, but to spend more time on that in the classroom where we were coming up with no close contacts because everyone's masked, didn't make sense. We need to turn that attention towards students and staff who might become symptomatic during the day. Fran Rabinowitz, what are you hearing from other superintendents uh, from different towns related to the, the contact tracing uh, changing? Well, I think that um, superintendents have been asking to um, discontinue the um, contact tracing for um, quite some time now. Um, they have a lot of data that shows that the contact tracing did not amount for the amount of work that it took. Um, it did not amount to uh, very many positive cases at all. And so they were pleased to be able to um, move from contact tracing to what Jan just talked about. And that is the, um, you know, having their school nurses and personnel focus on the symptomatic and, um, and, you know, making sure that those um, students are moved out and at home. So I'm hearing relief from um, most superintendents on the contact tracing. Mm. And what about parents uh, who are concerned about this, uh, Fran? Well, I think parents need um, the communication is so important. And even when you think you're communicating well, there's you have a ways to go. I found that out um, in many, many instances. And I think that parents need to see that the um, contact tracing didn't yield um, um, protection for their students. And there are better ways um, that we can work now um, to ensure that their students are even better protected. I mean, I, I'm not blaming anyone. We needed to work through this. This is new information, new territory for everyone. But honestly, the data shows that the contact tracing didn't result in um, a whole lot of um, a finding of positive cases. Mm. Uh, before we let you go, uh, the Department of Public Health will be uh, having a press conference uh, later this morning talking about this updated guidance. Uh, Jan, what do you want to hear from uh, officials, including the governor, uh, related to this surge and how uh, your district and others can be helped? I, 
I would really like them to continue with their messaging and, and explanation to the public um, about why these changes have come about and any clarification that CDC provides if they can um, you know, share that with the public uh, so that they can help us message you know, what it is that we're doing to keep students safe and how we're trying to strike that balance between you know, overall health of students and staff and uh, both physical and mental health. And uh, I firmly believe that being in school um, is a great way to support students and their, their growth and their mental health. And we certainly saw during school close down periods that there was a, a significant concern about how students were developing socially and academically. Uh, and I don't wanna go back to a place where they're not together learning from each other uh, I don't ever want to go back there again if I can help it. And I'm hoping that what they give us today will will support that, support us being in school and give us good language uh, to continue to explain it to the public. Fran Rabinowitz, who's executive director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. Again, we heard about the patchwork, uh, you know, some school districts like New Haven uh, pulling in uh, bus drivers from neighboring towns uh, that their schools were, were closed. And when we think about, you know, this next week, you know, not all parents uh, can drive their kids into school. And so, you know, the, the challenges that remain as we think about this latest surge. I do believe that there are um, challenges that um, do remain. I don't want to lead anyone down a primrose path. I think we're um, we're doing um, the very best we can. I think we're going to continue to try to keep every school open that we possibly can. And I think the best that we can do um, is let parents know as soon as we know. Um, and families. Uh, I think that is incredibly important. I'm hearing that sometimes it's, I mean, I know personally, it's very difficult when you hear it um, very, very um, um, close to the time your children are, you're planning to have your children in school that, you know, schools aren't open or there's not transportation. So I think we'll do our best to let them know as soon as we possibly can. And that might be something that the state can work on as well, a pitch in a, a plan when, when school districts are, are struggling to find bus drivers, Fran? Yes, I think, you know, the state's been helpful with that in terms of um, alternate um, um, providers. And I think we'll continue to um, to work together to um, try to find ways to um, make that happen. That's Fran Rabinowitz. Uh, also with us today was Jan Peruccio, who's superintendent of Old Saybrook Public Schools. Jan, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Coming up, what questions do you have about Omicron and the new CDC guidance on isolating after testing positive? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Sarah tweets, we must do more to protect medically vulnerable families. They shouldn't have to choose school versus health, especially when Connecticut hasn't properly protected schools for the surge. She goes on to say, no HEPA in classrooms because outdated state public of health guidelines despite recommendations from public health experts. Again, we reached out to the Department of Public Health. They were unable to join us this hour. We'll be back after a short break.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. 21.5%. That's Connecticut's daily COVID positivity rate as of Monday, the highest seen in our state as the very contagious Omicron variant continues to infect residents. Hospitalizations have grown to more than 1,400, and officials say more than 6 out of 10 of those hospitalized were not fully vaccinated. So when will Omicron peak, and what's the latest on the CDC's guidance to shorten isolation periods after that positive COVID test? Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Saad Omer, an epidemiologist. He's a vaccine researcher, also director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Saad, welcome back to the show. My pleasure. Also, listeners, again, can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So I had asked uh, Superintendent Peruccio uh, from Old Saybrook, uh, you know, what their feelings were about this updated CDC uh, guidance. Uh, She mentioned, uh, you know, she had confidence in what the State Department of Public Health had shared related to this five day going from 10 days to five days. So talk more about uh, this guidance and how it all rolled out, Saad. Yeah, so uh, CDC started considering shortening the isolation period um, last month based on on the fact that this virus uh, was emerging, this various variant was emerging, and there was evidence that there was um, lower severity per case, although I'll, I can go into the nuance that it still burdens the health system and it has substantial consequences at the population level, but also because of its high infectivity, a high proportion of uh, workers would have been out of the workforce. And and this includes, you know, for example, uh, people working at water plants or bus drivers, school bus drivers, and so on and so forth. And a lot of us had called for a shortening of the isolation period. Uh, in parallel, uh, other countries have taken action on it as well. For example, the UK has a policy of a shorter than 10-day um, isolation period, provided there are two negative rapid tests. So then uh, CDC came out with this policy uh, where uh, this recommendation of shortening the isolation period for very understandable reasons. Um, that uh, you know, to enjoy, in order to maintain the the functioning of the society, uh, to they, they shortened the period to five days. But one thing that a lot of us were concerned about that it didn't come up come with a recommendation of testing out of uh, isolation. Uh, if you want to have a shorter 
isolation period. And here's the reason why. It's, it's very reasonable to say that uh, PCR tests um, are very useful for initial diagnosis and, and, you know, otherwise as well. But they remain positive beyond the period of infectivity. So, you, you know, not enough virus. They're, they're sensitive, uh, perhaps, you know, you know, they're looking at the viral RNA, but they're not, um, you know, after a while, they stopped being a good proxy for infectiousness. On the other hand, they are rapid tests, uh, rapid antigen tests um, that are actually very reasonable uh, correlates of, uh, of, of infectiousness that at a given time, uh, whether someone is infectious and in that sense is able to rejoin the society uh, safely. So a lot of us, including myself, had a few questions about that nuance uh, in that recommendation where even rapid tests were not included, unlike the UK, for example. So that's the situation. Having said that, I will say that this kind of um, uh, guidance uh, is difficult to develop. And it is based on, so it's just like uh, saying that CDC didn't have uh, these tools available when, you know, for two years, this country didn't invest in testing and ramping up rapid testing. So at this point, CDC is in a difficult situation based on what happened over the last two years. And when you talk about uh, testing, that's another thing that we're running into, the lack of testing available, Saad. Yeah, absolutely. Again, um, a lot of folks have been calling for increasing in uh, the production and um, sort of thinking through and tweaking the approval pathways for rapid tests. So, so currently, the way our regulatory system works uh, is that we evaluate these tests uh, for diagnosis, but they serve a public health function as well. It's not just identifying that someone had uh, a virus and you can sort of take one test and, and, and figure out uh, you know, even through a PCR test uh, as well, as well as a, a rapid test, there's a difference in sensitivity. But where rapid tests become particularly useful is serial testing to say that when someone ceases to be infectious. Um, and the other thing is rapid tests are just that, they're rapid. One issue with PCR tests is they're great tests. So I'm not dissing them for their value in sort of getting a definitive diagnosis and they remain the gold standard. Um, it is uh, one issue, one logistical issue is the so-called turnaround time between the test and the result. And so, so, so that time to action from a public health perspective where you say that someone uh, can end their isolation becomes even more complicated with the PCR test which again is, is our mainstay for diagnosis. So, so, so these are some of the nuances uh, that a lot of people were highlighting for the last couple of years. And I wish uh, as a country, we would have had uh, a similar approach uh, that may have required tweaking regulation. Uh, you know, we have had large trillion dollar, you know, trillions of dollar worth of uh, legislation passed. And could we not have in the past years tweaked our regulatory pathways? Could we not have ramped up an operation warp speed, if you will, of testing, including home-based testing, to make sure that every American has access to these tests and, at, uh, and, and access at affordable prices?
So when we look at the reality that we're in right now, Assad, uh, when we were just talking with school officials, parents are concerned uh, with this updated guidance, uh, you know, the idea that they, people can go back to school or to work uh, after five days if they're not asymptomatic, uh, you know, how should people feel about this moment that we're in and have confidence in returning uh, to life? So a couple of things. First of all, we can open schools safely, uh, you know, overall, if you do a certain set of things, and I can come back to that in a second. But to come to your question, uh, you know, one of your um, guests, earlier guests, the superintendent of schools from Old Saybrook, said something very, um, you know, what, what, something that, that we hear very commonly from uh, people in her position is that it's not their land to interpret and create um, public health policy. And so I think from their perspective, following the current policy is a reasonable and understandable um, path to, to, uh, to, 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 to take. Similarly, in a relatively smaller state like Connecticut, I don't blame the Department of Public Health uh, from not, um, you know, for not deviating from the CDC guidance. Other states like California, a larger state, has taken the action of adding, uh, you know, at least one antigen test uh, to end your isolation at, you know, as early as five days, as as part of their policy. So, so there are sort of nuances to that. Uh, I would say if uh, folks have uh, an antigen test available, uh, Connecticut has done more than other states uh, to make these tests available. Uh, and there's a serious effort, but on, at the end of the day, uh, they're working with the overall national supply, uh, and and that is an issue uh, because of the reasons I mentioned. Uh, so at the individual level, I would say that there are other ways schools are being kept safe. So that gives me confidence. Uh, I would say if you have access to, and wherever there is access to antigen tests, um, again, this is my personal opinion as a scientist, uh, and, and CDC recommendations do mention that as an option. Uh, so, so this is not a, a sort of uh, a um, an avoidance of of that guidance, but but they don't make it a requirement. So, so if you have availability of um, an antigen test, use that to make sure that you're not infectious uh, before joining the workforce. So, so that's where we are at this point, threading the needle. There are signs that there is some discussion within the administration uh, and around the CDC for adding more nuance uh, to this recommendation. When you say nuance, uh, more uh, scientific background uh, and data so that the public can understand uh, the, the rationale behind the 10 to 5 side. So, so here's just to give everyone a little bit of an idea. For those of us who have been doing infectious disease-related research for um, sort of a few decades, uh, we are used to having a high level of trust in CDC guidance. Um, it's not just because we like the agency, but because CDC has this tradition of, uh, not for all guidance, but for all of the important guidance to show their work in the sense they, uh, uh, you know, release a scientific document that 99% people don't have to read, but those of us who do this for a living do read that and, and you know, uh, including scientists and a lot of practicing clinicians, et cetera, go and sort of read those the details in that guidance that provides the rationale, the specific studies, the specific reasoning, 
and so on and so forth behind an important recommendation. Right now, what we have uh, is a, a press release that has been revised once, uh, issued to, to add some clarity, uh, that was released during the holidays. And I understand the reasons for that in a pandemic, to get the information out, to let people know what needs to be done. But I'm just hoping that the, and, and on top of that, sorry, to back that up a little, um, you know, CDC leadership and others have gone to the media uh, to try to interpret, to hint at the kinds of reasoning that they're using for that guidance. But I'm hoping that specific, detailed, scientific background will come out now. So it's okay to get it out, get ahead of the, the situation by releasing the information early. But I think uh, my hope would be that in the next few days, uh, that scientific rationale will be made public. We're going to continue talking with Dr. Saad Omer, an epidemiologist and director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Uh, coming up, we also are going to hear from a local doctor about treating patients with COVID inside a local hospital and what some doctors want Governor Lamont to do. You can join us as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Got a question about Omicron as cases continue to skyrocket in Connecticut and nationwide? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. With us on Zoom is Dr. Saad Omer, an epidemiologist and vaccine researcher, also director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Uh, Dr. Omer, I, I wanted to ask you about mask mandates when we think about how contagious the Omicron variant is. Is this something that it could be a useful tool? I think it can be a useful tool um, as long as it's indoor mask mandate. And I think it's a, a reasonable policy option to consider when these cases are surging um, at the level that they are. Even if they are milder than before, they are stressing our health system and will continue to stress our health system in the state and nationally for the next several weeks. So I think that's a reasonable thing to consider for at least a short period of time. Uh, because we're talking about uh, the stress on uh, health systems locally, uh, joining us now uh, on the phone is Dr. Mark Siegel, who is with, uh, who's pulmonary and critical care physician and residency program director at the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Siegel, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Uh, we just heard uh, Saad Omer say that the, a mask mandate would be very useful, especially indoors when we think about this surge. This is something that you and other doctors have been calling for from Governor Lamont. So tell us what you're seeing in the critical care setting and why you believe an indoor mask mandate is needed. Well, it's a crisis. Uh, the hospital is getting overrun. There are many patients coming in with critical illness. We're as busy as we've ever been since the start of the pandemic. 
it's clear that the virus spreads um, through aerosols. Um, patients basically inhale the virus, and masks are an excellent way to keep people safe. So our belief is that if the governor would send out a clear, strong message telling patients or people that they must wear masks, um, if you were to institute a mandate, um, we would get this pandemic under control. Uh, when we think about uh, how the state has responded to requests from you and others for a statewide indoor mask mandate, you know, the governor um, has been worried that that would uh, cause some residents to kind of rebel and maybe they don't like this other um, extra mandate on top of uh, some of the other things that people have been asked to do. You know, how do you respond to that? And also seeing that municipalities are putting forth sta- uh, an indoor mask mandate, even though there's not a statewide one. I think the governor is underestimating Connecticut residents. I'm sure there are some people who would rebel, but there are many more who want to be protected. And the fact that he can't enforce it in every single situation is besides the point. I think when he says that Connecticut residents must wear masks in indoor places, like Dr. Omer is saying, they'll get the message. And this is the strong message that we need from our governor. Um, and I think if you were to do that, I think that we would get this pandemic under control. Mm. You're also a residency program director. When you talk about the crisis that you're seeing inside hospitals, also working with residents, what are they experiencing, Dr. Siegel? Well, they're the ones on the front lines, uh, along with the nurses and the respiratory therapists. They're the ones who are working with frightened patients, um, dealing with grieving families. Um, they take it very personally. I think on top of the fact that the infection is so lethal, there's an added layer of frustration now because the majority of the patients we're taking care of are not vaccinated. And in most cases, they were infected due to some preventable circumstance. You know, now most recently going to parties over the holidays or going to restaurants um, where the, the risk of getting the virus is extremely high. So I think it's that layer of dealing with illness, but also knowing that it didn't have to be that way that makes it particularly hard on on the residents and other frontline workers. They're tired and frustrated and doing their very best to take care of the patients, but but it's hard emotionally on top of the, the, um, the professional challenges. When you talk about uh, the emotions, the professional challenges, you know, everyone's wondering when uh, this latest surge will peak. And so can you talk about that and, and, and how you and your colleagues continue to do this work uh, in this challenging time? Well, it's our job. You know, we're, we're called to do it. And um, if the patients need us, we'll be there. Um, I think that our hope is, is that when Connecticut residents understand what they need to do to help us bring the pandemic under control, that we'll start to see the, the rates of infections start to come down. And it's that hope that that day will come, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, that, that helps us get through the day. You've been hearing Dr. Mark Siegel, pulmonary and critical care physician, residency program director at the Yale School of Medicine. He and other healthcare professionals uh, really advocating for a statewide indoor mask mandate, especially in this latest surge. Dr. Siegel, thank you for fitting us into your schedule. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity.
I wanted to go back to Saad Omer. Uh, we were talking about, about, you know, what healthcare professionals are seeing every day, uh, thinking about um, the many tools that we have, vaccination, masking. Can we talk more about these uh, mitigation uh, strategies and, and also how the messaging has changed? I was just thinking and, and hearing and seeing that, you know, there's now a lot of attention on the types of masks that people should be wearing. So many of us wearing the cotton mask, but now uh, emphasis on the KN95s. Can you walk us through that, Saad? Saad, can you hear us? Uh, yes. Uh, so I'm a vaccine researcher for a while, and, and nothing would please me more than just vaccines being the heroes of this pandemic and saving uh, everyone. And, and that would be a nice narrative. But unfortunately, we need a little bit more than the vaccines um, to get this outbreak under control. The long-term solution and the major part of the current solution remains vaccines and now boosters. So, so keep that in mind that vaccines are highly protective uh, individually and, and there is a little bit of a confusion, at least in the first few months after each dose, uh, especially second and third dose, they do reduce, not to 100%, they do not eliminate transmission. There is evidence they reduce transmission as well. So having said that, when you have a virus that is as infectious, many fold more infectious than even pandemic flu, and so so this is... And, and many-fold more infections, two to three times more infections than the original virus uh, that emerged out of China, you need to tweak your strategies. And one of the things that a lot of folks have been talking about is increasing in the two years. Remember, in the first month, you prioritize the availability of the masks for healthcare providers so that you can maintain the continuity of operations in the health, uh, in our hospitals, in our clinics, and, and, and other facilities. But after that, we had the time to increase gradually the quality of masks, the, of, of masks that uh, folks have access to. And that would have prepared us. And, and now, actually, there is supply in the system, pretty considerable level of supply in the system. It's an issue of access and, and an issue of education, uh, an issue of making sure that it's, uh, you know, yes, persuading people is in another uh, part of the communications effort in public health, but it's it's the confusion of the willing that is one barrier uh, to accessing the mask. So, what kind of mask I need? Uh, what how to order them and how to cheaply and easily and quickly get them for myself and my family? Is you know these are the kind of questions people have. And so so yes, so at this point we need to increase the average quality of the mask that people are wearing make clear, strong recommendations, associate that, pair that up with a simple old school public education campaign. And this is not just true for masks, but also for tests, not necessarily persuasion. Again, it's the, it's, it's the confusion of the willing that is one barrier. And so that's a low hanging fruit. Um, and, and then communicate at least transiently, at least in the face of a highly infectious virus, we need to have a layered strategy. And entities have successfully used layered strategies. Uh, for example, colleges and universities in 
Connecticut and other places have used layered a, a, a layered strategy to keep things under control and to make sure that their main mission and their main function of educating people in person continues. Sada, we just have a couple of minutes left. I saw a New York Times science writer, actually I heard him say, Carl Zimmer, that Omicron is winning against Delta. More Omicron cases have meant less Delta in the U.S. Is that a silver lining when we think about the severity of some of the illnesses caused by Delta? Uh, it is a silver lining, but but with a huge nuance. So CDC um, models, CDC coordinated models were released, I think last evening or this morning, um, that project uh, in the next few months, we that project that the, the wave of Omicron will crest um, in the next few weeks, uh, and then we'll have a decline. But in that period, they're expecting still tens of thousands of deaths, and and uh, and according to to some estimates, uh, eighty to hundred thousand deaths. And so, um, remember, you know, even a virus that has um, a case fatality lower than previous variants, and a virus uh, that has lower chances of severe disease per infection, if it happens in large numbers can have pretty substantial impact, largely in the unvaccinated. And what our, you know, part of our population is a pretty substantial part of our population is unvaccinated. And it it will be, you know, even if it's better than Delta in terms of case Mm -hmm. per uh, severity per case, the cumulative impact can still be something uh, which can be a body blow uh, to our to our system. That's an important point when you mentioned those that are still unvaccinated, children being one of them, the CDC and others, even in Connecticut, uh, talking about more children being hospitalized for COVID, Sad. That remains true. So more than before, uh, children are being hospitalized. Compared to other age groups, the disease uh, remains relatively less severe on average in children, but but the, the increase in hospitalization uh, is a concern uh, for folks and and everyone. Um, and and so so yes, that's part of the story uh, that we need to be mindful of. What is happening is that increasingly, as trials unfold and the data comes out and FDA approves the vaccines and then boosters the age of vaccination, the minimum age of vaccination is going down. Unfortunately, some of the trials didn't show an effect in, in very young or, or sort of under the you know five children. Um, uh, but that's why we do trials. And so they're trying it with the different dose. So there is a little bit of a delay in vaccinating that age group. But that's why it's all the more important to vaccinate everyone else around them. Saad Omar, thank you so much for joining us, an epidemiologist and director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. This is where we live. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. <laughs>